right in the middle when COVID started, I'm guessing probably April of 2020. And through that, as we started thinking and Lauren and I kind of put our heads together, we're thinking, you know, why don't we have this legislation in Tennessee? Welcome to season three of Fertility Cafe. I'm your host, Eloise Drain. I'm excited to introduce and speak to our first guests of season three on the show today. Fertility care is ever evolving. For many, medical treatments are not covered by their insurance. Coverage for infertility and fertility preservation can currently be disallowed by insurance companies. And many insurance companies have fertility coverage classified as cosmetic or elective. As of April 2021, 19 states have passed fertility insurance coverage laws. 13 of those laws include IVF coverage, and 11 states have fertility preservation laws for medically induced infertility. Unfortunately, still more than half the country has no requirements for fertility coverage, yet more and more people are experiencing fertility issues every year. It's better than it was five years ago, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And that's where our guests come in, Molly Walker and Chelsea Caldwell, two ladies who took up the fertility care torch as advocates to help change the fertility landscape. Molly Walker, a VP at Landmark Community Bank, is a believer, wife, and proud mother of two beautiful children. However, the road to having them wasn't easy. With no insurance coverage for infertility, years of trying to conceive, and two miscarriages, it felt overwhelming, lonely, and hopeless at times. Now she advocates passionately for others that the disease of infertility would be covered by insurance in the state of Tennessee, so the financial barrier is removed and allows more couples the opportunity to conceive their own children. In 2020, along with Lauren Brown, she co-founded Tennessee Fertility Advocates, an organization dedicated to spreading awareness, fighting for fertility-friendly legislation in Tennessee, and assisting others to speak to their employers about the need for fertility coverage. Also with us is Chelsea Caldwell, a family law attorney who happens to also be the Director of Legal Services for Family Inceptions. She too is a wife, mother of toddler twins, and dealt with her own infertility struggles. Chelsea is a dedicated volunteer and advocate on behalf of those who desire better access and affordability of family building options, and specifically the Tennessee Fertility Advocates. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Welcome, ladies. So happy to have you join me today. Although I shared a quick summary of your bio, I would love for you to share a bit about yourselves. So Molly, I would like to start with you first. Awesome, yes, thank you so much for having me. My name is Molly Walker, born and raised in Carterville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a banker by day, but a full-time fertility uh, advocate for Tennessee Fertility Advocates and just advocacy in general. I have two children, a six-year-old and three-year-old, and a wonderful husband. But the journey to having those kids was really difficult, and we didn't have any insurance coverage. And so, to me, it's very important to speak up and share your story. And I've been blessed to do that with TFA. So, uh, just really excited to be here. But um, I am a Tennessean through and through, and 
yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. What about you, Chelsea? Thank you, Eloise, for the introduction. You summed it up nicely. My name is Chelsea Caldwell. Happy to be here today. I'm a family law attorney and specialized and have dedicated my law practice to assisted reproductive technologies. I'm licensed in both Tennessee and Arkansas, and additionally, very honored to serve as the Director of Legal Services for Family Inceptions, which I love. Like Molly, I also share a personal story of infertility. I have twins from IVF, and going through that journey personally, I knew that professionally, uh, this is what I wanted to do in my law practice, was to help others who struggle with infertility and are desirous of parenthood and need assistance to become parents. As it pertains to Tennessee Fertility Advocates, I co-authored the Tennessee Pro-Family Building Act, and I've been involved with the organization since near its beginning. I met Molly and Lauren, the other co-founder, on an advocacy day called for federal infertility insurance coverage. I think I was the next person they approached, probably the third member of uh, TFA, which now has over 7,000 plus members. Wow. That many? Mm-hmm. That's yep. awesome. Okay. Well, we're going to get into all the details. So, well, first, I know taking on legislation in any state seems daunting, but doing it in a more conservative state seems probably extremely overwhelming. So first, Molly, what was your motivation to start Tennessee Fertility Advocates? I mean, like, how did it come about? Obviously, I know your story, but it's one thing to have a story and then it's a whole other, you know, thing to say, yeah, I'm actually going to pull the trigger and do this. Right. Well, so a friend of mine since um, kindergarten, her name is Lauren Brown. She lives very close to me here in Carnival, Tennessee. She was one of the only ones that I really knew was going through infertility as well as myself. And We kind of talked back and forth. She's the one that connected me to the fertility doctor that I saw, Dr. Amelia Bailey. And through those years, I just remember feeling so helpless and so alone and like just embarrassed and shamed that something's off with my body. And, you know, I'd have people say, and it's not their fault, they didn't know, but they'd say, well, don't you want children or don't you want to give your sibling a child? Not to know that I had a miscarriage the day before, you know, and Things like that are just excruciating for anyone, the mental health and physical and financial, all of those things together. So we decided to start Tennessee Fertility Advocates, Lauren and I, um, like Chelsea said, we met on a, um, a federal advocacy day call. It was right in the middle when COVID started, I'm guessing probably April of 2020. And through that, as we started thinking and Lauren and I kind of put our heads together and we're thinking, you know, why don't we have this legislation in Tennessee? I want to know more. And I heard about Colorado's recent passing of their legislation. And it's so funny through Instagram of all things and mm-hmm. hashtags. Mm-hmm. Um, I got connected to the representative who led the way in Colorado. And we talked for an hour and a half of just listening to how it was and how it came to be. And she connected me with other people. Lauren and I put our heads together and said, you know what? I don't know what this looks like, but why don't we start Tennessee Fertility Advocates? We just came up with the name Grassroots Organization. And but our first and main goal was to create awareness and support for those going through it, because I just I knew no matter what happens with legislation, I don't want people to feel Mm -hmm. the depression that I felt. Nobody should have to feel that. And we just need community. Really, we do. And then we want to help advocates talk to their employers as well. And we also want to obviously see legislation passed in a conservative state. And so that's when we reached out to Chelsea because we met her through that call. And 
we just kind of all put our heads together and really just started um, started from the ground up without any idea really what to come. <laughs> but I just know for me, God put something in my heart and ignited something and gave my pain a purpose and as well as Lauren's and Chelsea's. And uh, we're just honored to to just see what has happened even in the past year. It's been absolutely incredible. Yeah. And the fact that it's only been one year and like you had already said that you already have 7,000 members, would you mind walking us through your timeline a bit in creating TFA, writing the Tennessee Pro-Family Building Act bill and building awareness for the cause? Like Absolutely. within a one year, that's a lot in a <laughs> year is. time frame. <laughs> and we're, we are, we do all have full-time jobs and uh -huh. children to take care of and all of those things. But you know, I'm a huge believer, and I think you kind of said something similar to this earlier, is there's a choice where we can complain about things, we can gripe about insurance not covering it, we can just be depressed and nobody wants to sit in that state, or we can do something. And I feel like this world needs more doers. Mm -hmm. And the people that I hope listen to this podcast will realize like the true impact of one, two, three folks and just how much that can really make a difference. So we started with this vision, the Tennessee Fertility Advocates Group literally had no idea about legislation. Thanks to like writing a bill. Obviously, we're, we got the help of Chelsea. Uh, we reached out with Fertility Within Reach as well and just did a lot of research on the front end, started researching organizations similar to ours in other states, reaching out and asking those leaders of those groups, hey, would you have a call with us? Because I want to learn. I mean, tell me, what have you learned? What works well? What has not worked well? And I mean, if you saw all the notes, I'm a note taker and all the different binders of notes that I have and putting things together, you would probably think, oh my goodness, girl. And, uh, but we started with a Facebook group, okay? Mm -hmm. Just a basic Facebook group. Becca, we actually started with a logo. One of my friends, she has a graphic design company. She's awesome. Gave us some options. So we came up with a logo. And then we started our free Facebook group. And then we were able to start going to like a GoDaddy website. I've never built a website. Uh, but we also had some assistance from a lady named Kim, who's been a, a incredible as well. And we kind of, started there. We started um, the website. It launched August 12th, which was my birthday last year. So this August 12th was one year of our website. And we started hitting up with Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. We had a public Facebook page as well as a private group. The private group is more so, Elise, if you were involved in this stuff, that's where people really open their heart, okay, and share. The public page is stuff where people can click the share button share about us, link it to the website. Um, a big thing that we did off the beginning that I think is huge for any advocacy group is have a take action button. Okay, so we link that to a survey and that way it helps us know who are these advocates legislators? What's their story? Do they wanna get involved? And then also we found through Google, I found um, a lady named Kara Edwards who started a nonprofit called Starfish Infertility Foundation in Nashville. Reached out to her out of the blue on Instagram saying, hey, I saw what you did through this article. Here's what we're working on. And it was something heavy on her heart. And I mean, God just orchestrated all these people at the right mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And 
It, you know, when it comes to the bill, I'll let Chelsea obviously speak into that because that was mainly, you know, the things I love to do are to advocate, grow our group, build awareness. And then I let the others that are good at writing legislation do their job. So, but as far as just the grassroots group, we started there and I tell you, it is like a fire has been ignited. I mean, mm. truly with, you know, so many individuals going through infertility, it is, I mean, I really think that number is going to go through the roof in the next few years because I people agree. find out about us mm -hmm. through um, obviously getting the word out, like podcasts like yours. So mm -hmm. just really thankful to do anything to bring awareness to this issue. Yep. I shared in the intro that there are currently 19 states that have passed fertility insurance coverage laws. However, Tennessee didn't make the list as it would it was deferred to next year. Chelsea, what does state coverage laws mean for individuals who are struggling to build their families? Sure. So essentially, fertility insurance coverage laws would require fertility care and fertility treatment to be covered by insurance, like treatment for would be covered by insurance for any other disease. Mm -hmm. Insurers, however, see these laws and bills and almost have an automatic negative gut response, thinking that, oh, no, this is only going to raise our premiums when actually it does the opposite and results in cost savings. The explanation to that is when no benefits are provided and people are paying out of pocket for fertility treatment, that creates a financial incentive for these patients that are undergoing IVF to transfer more than one embryo at a time to maximize the chance of pregnancy because this is their one shot. Mm -hmm. uh, this inevitably increases the rate of multiple births, which in turn significantly increases healthcare costs to upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars per pregnancy. When patients have benefits though, they're less likely to make medical decisions based on finances. They're more likely to transfer a single embryo at a time, which increases the likelihood of a singleton pregnancy, reduces costs, and also protects the health of the mother and the child being born. But to circle back to your question, uh, these laws are there so that insurance would cover the cost of treatment, such as the cost of IVF, rather than the patient having to pay out of pocket. Uh, and as you know, many families go into significant debt, take out second mortgages on their homes just to pay for treatment. So these laws have a really huge impact on families who are not only dealing with the emotional toll infertility brings, but also really struggling to find a way to afford the treatment that they need to grow their family. And then if you think about it too, I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's becoming more and more a reality that more and more people are experiencing fertility issues every single year. And I do not see that it's going to stop. If anything, it's becoming even more prevalent. Mm -hmm. So, and the thing is, given that half the country still has no mandate for coverage, Molly, how does one even go about to start something similar in their state? Like, where do they even begin? Yeah, so that's a great question. First thing you do is obviously... Try to make sure that there, if there's an uh, organization already starting something in your state, I rec highly obviously suggest researching it on the computer, um, looking on Facebook and that type, because you just never know. Hey, maybe on East in East Tennessee, there could have been a group already started. Well, let's join forces and not work against each other. Um, and obviously there wasn't in Tennessee, but I'm just saying whatever state you're in, make it, you know, just do your research that is there anything like this already already in the in the works that we could get involved in. If there's not, do it. Start mm -hmm. it yourself. Reach out to your local House and Senate representatives, your House representative and your senator. Find out who who those individuals are that you elect into office. 
That's extremely important. But besides the main thing to start, creating the group, building awareness and getting the advocates, because without advocates and without their story, it, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. These House representatives and these senators, they want to listen to their constituents. And so if you don't have constituents in all of the districts, you know, in reaching everyone with their personal story, why does it matter to them? Why should mm-hmm. they push an insurance mandate in a conservative state of all? Mm-hmm. Why should they do that if they don't have anybody picking up the phone saying, I want to meet with you and tell you my story? Because to me, family building matters and I need your help. I'm mm-hmm. electing you into office and I need your voice and I need your help. So I feel it's really important to have without the advocates, you're nothing. So having the advocate group starting there, not being afraid to not know all the answers. You know how much how many mistakes that I, I made this first year? A lot. But you know what? I learned from them. And if somebody was to call me from another state, which if you have, I will tell them all the things. Hey, this is what I learned not to do. This is what I learned to do. I'm still learning and growing and try to give them advice along the way. So I'm saying I am happy to do that because without Colorado and they're, you know, kind of giving us some insight of what as well, like it was very helpful. And then also to reach out to the local fertility clinics in your area. See if you have some doctors in those groups that are passionate about this and be okay if you don't get any response from any of the clinics. That's okay too, but at least try. I have a huge advocate in my doctor and my OB has been incredible as well. So there are a lot of clinics, doctors that would, they would love to see this for their patients. And, you know, really just finding out, hey, what are my strengths as a leader of this group? Or what, and what are my weaknesses? And what, who else in this group, maybe my weaknesses are their strengths, Mm-hmm. and utilize them. Mm-hmm. Let people do what they're good at. And it might be looking like, hey, div- taking your state and divide in three parts and have lead in like West, Middle and East, whatever that looks like. So you kind of have a central person that they can go to and take take some off of it. Something for next year, I'm going to do better at delegating. So maybe uh, <laughs> start early with delegating to some really trustworthy people. But um but yeah, I hope that helps. And I'm always happy to, to elaborate on any of that as well. Absolutely. So Chelsea, I have a two-part question for you. One, uh, how does one begin to draft a bill? And what has to happen for a bill to be made into law and to then to go into effect? Sure. So starting with your question for how does one begin to draft a bill, I'll just start out by saying that during my experience with TFA, I've learned a ton about the legislative process. I'm not a legislative lawyer, didn't even take legislation or admin in law school. (laughs) And this is purely from a family law art attorney background. Um, Luckily for me, as Molly mentioned, I had a co-author very familiar with the legislative process pertaining to fertility insurance coverage laws and advocacy efforts in other states. Uh, Davina Fankhauser of Fertility Within Reach. And we worked really well in drafting a bill that we felt provided comprehensive coverage and also fit the political climate in Tennessee. Um, But in drafting that bill, we looked to guidance in other states' fertility insurance coverage laws, and particularly those states that have a similar political climate uh, to Tennessee. Addressing your next question, what happens for a bill to be made into a law and go into effect? Uh, Generally, a bill is introduced by a legislator in the House or Senate. It's referred to a number of subcommittees and committees that has to get through in both the House and Senate. And once approved and passed by both, it then goes to the governor. Uh, The governor can sign the bill into law 
uh, allow it to become law without his or her signature or veto it. A governor's veto can be overridden, usually by a two-thirds vote or majority vote. But most bills do go into effect the first day of uh, January of the next year, although some bills are slated to take effect in the following year or longer, depending on the language of the bill. Can you tell us how the third-party reproduction is incorporated in the Tennessee Pro-Family Building Act? And I just wanted to point out especially when it comes to insurance, it's already difficult to even get fertility coverage. But then you add in already having an issue in insurance with fertility coverage, then you're in a conservative state, then there's political views, unfortunately, that come into it when, quite honestly, it should just completely be out of the picture altogether because this is not anything political. This is about human beings, really, and the coverage that they need because we all know that fertility is a disease, or should I say infertility, rather, is a disease. And now you're talking about, okay, well, and now let's add in third-party surrogacy, egg donation, uh, sperm donation, whatever the case is. And now you're also trying to introduce that into a, in, in a conservative state. So can you tell us how that um, went about? Sure. So um, in the bill, we included the defined term third-party reproductive care for the benefit of the enrollee. Um, and our definition was that of that meant it was the use of egg, sperm, or embryos that are donated to the enrollee or partner by a donor or the use of a gestational carrier to achieve a live birth. Then in another section of the bill, we discussed the diagnosis of infertility, fertility treatment, and fertility preservation. In that section, it states that the insurance carrier shall provide coverage for the expenses of all of those and that that coverage must include diagnosis of infertility, fertility treatment, and standard fertility preservation services, including third-party reproductive care. So that was referencing our defined term uh, for the benefit of the enrollee or partner. One issue that we faced and misunderstanding um, as it pertains to this concept was the conflation of fertility benefits with maternity benefits when third-party reproductive care is involved, specifically when a gestational carrier is involved. For some reason, the legislators and insurance lobbyists thought that if a gestational carrier is used, this bill would provide maternity coverage throughout the entire pregnancy. False. Um, as you're very aware, when gestational carrier is used, uh, unless the intended parents are planning to cash pay, the carrier needs to have a health insurance policy in place that covers the maternity medical expenses related to the pregnancy. Usually this is her own medical insurance policy or the intended parents secure a policy for her. But how the language in our bill worked is that if the fertility coverage provided in this bill as it pertains to, let's say, an enrollee undergoing an embryo transfer and medications she would take in preparation for that. This would allow a gestational carrier to essentially take her place for that purpose. Those same medical expenses would be covered under this bill. It would not extend as maternity benefits throughout the pregnancy. And unfortunately, you know, although I wish it could be included, the bill would not cover compensation that gestational carrier or donor would receive. Going back to your point as it pertains to a political opinions, you know, we, we did face some pushback on that. And I think largely it stems from just not having not being very familiar with the process. I think mm -hmm. a lot of it can be addressed through educating the legislators and that the that these services really are necessary for people to build their family that um, can't do it on their own without mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. 
Molly, the third stated objective of your organization is to assist our advocates in speaking to their employers about the need for fertility coverage. Why is empowered conversations with employers and HR representatives so important? Man, this one is something that's just really near and dear to my heart. When I did the Federal Advocacy Day with Chelsea and when we were kind of just getting our feet wet, if you will, in advocacy in general, one of the things I learned about state legislation is even if a bill passes in your state, if you work for a company that's under an ERISA plan, so like a large employer, like a AutoZone or International Paper or a FedEx, large employer that's under an ERISA plan, company, then they don't have to agree and follow state mandated laws. Okay. So to simplify all that, I mean that to say it is so crucial to speak up to your employer. It is something I did when I was at a larger organization and still continue to help others fight that fight. Um, We have seen firsthand just, just how much it means to have these kind of empowered conversations with your employer as well and just seeing letting them know that hey i'm here i'm in the struggle right now and i could really use some assistance if we're giving money to send go back to school you're giving money for adoption which is amazing why not help families build their own due Mm -hmm. to this disease Mm -hmm. that affects males and females and a lot unfortunately i think the world we live in a lot of people think are A, ashamed of their story. Okay, I get that. It is hard to verbally admit it or write it out or share with this complete stranger who might not even care. It is hard. But also, I think we often just wonder, okay, if I work at a company that has 10,000 employees, what is my one story going to do? Well, guess what? You can start a group at your company and you can find people, I promise you, with one in six, you know, going through it, you can find others who... Who are struggling too. And mm-hmm. you just get a bunch involved. And that's what happened at ALSEC and at St. Jude. And they did an amazing job and they were, they uh, attained coverage this year. So it is crucial for us to help advocates figure out what that process looks like. Any tips for those who are hoping to speak with their employer about coverage? Like, absolutely. Well, what do you even you can, say? <laughs> yeah, great. Right. What do you even say? So first, if you haven't gone to our website, you can definitely do that. We kind of have a link there that has a lot of good resources. Um, TNFertilityAdvocates.com. You can always check that out. But I always say first, start with your research. Figure out not just who the head of HR is, but who's the benefits director. Okay. So in a large organization, there's somebody that's responsible for, hey, making a recommendation on what plans are offered, what things, what choices do we give our employees? Do research to try to find that. If you can't find that person, obviously start with your HR. But before you even pick up that phone or send an email, write your story down, okay? Mm -hmm. But you just really wanna write it in a compelling way. I always say, insert a picture of you, your significant other, say you have secondary infertility. Well, go ahead and put a picture of that and say, you know, we want to give her a sibling. Let them see, not even as an attachment, like right there in the body of the email, you know, Eloise, you could just put, put it mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. So when they open it, they are reading that story and they see, uh, they see a face behind it. They see humans behind it. So once you kind of get that story, that written out, obviously not too long, because they're not going to sit there and read it all probably. 
you know, you can either depending on if they're local and you can make an in-person meeting, by all means, do your best to do so. If not, request a phone call, do an email, but don't give up. The thing is, is I think often I'm guilty of this. How often do we send an email and if we don't hear back or we ask for something and we might not get the answer we want, we're just like, okay, well, they don't Mm -hmm. care. You know what? No, you're going to keep fighting. You're going to find other advocates that you work with. And if everybody starts asking around the same time, HR is going to say, okay, we've been asked about infertility coverage and, you know, the need for third party reproduction. We've seen this. We have an issue. We need to address it. And so- one story can literally start a start something that is just um, very, very meaningful. And so I say that to say that do your research, write your story, get the right contacts. Obviously, check out our website. We're happy to help any way you can, even if you just need a glance over your story, because there's just an effective way to write it. And then there's a way that where you're just really mad. And you want to find a good, happy balance between, hey, it's not their fault that they're not offering it right now. Some I had an employer that told me, you know what, and they have like 100,000 employees, that they haven't heard a lot of people ask for coverage. And a lot of their employees are, are members of our group. So you know what? We're going to change that. Like that mm-hmm. is something we need to work towards. They need to hear from their body of employees. And I think employees just need to know that they have them. They're empowered. You're empowered mm-hmm. to make a difference. You're empowered to speak up and your pain is not wasted. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, the worst thing I think we could do with infertility, at least especially this is how I view it, is to let our pain go to waste. Mm-hmm. You know, why did we go through that? We went through it for a reason and it might not affect Molly Walker right now. Say I want a third child legislation in Tennessee, if it takes a year, it's not going to affect me. But you know who it will affect? The two kids, my two kids and your kids and their kids in the next generation for generations to come. So it's not only about yourself. It is really about who is coming up behind us. That's right. We need to be their voice, right? They don't know. We need to advocate for them. So sorry, I get. No, 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 please. I feel it in my blood. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect because I wholeheartedly agree. And I also feel that is going to your employer and having the conversation about them. Because if you think about it, if the person or the people that are in the HR team, if they've never experienced infertility, it may not be in the front of their mind. It may not be something that they're thinking about. It isn't because they don't care or that because it's not something they're not willing to do. It could just very well be like, it was never a thought. Sure. And then also if they even say, well, right now we're, we're busy doing X project. We'll follow back up with this in a six months. Well, you know what I would do? I'd probably set a calendar reminder for a few mm-hmm. months from now. Mm-hmm. Touch back base and then touch again and never let it go. You know, don't give up. Mm-hmm. You keep pushing. And in the meantime, you're building up your advocate group at your employer. Yep, absolutely. Chelsea, I know that one of the things that a lot of major corporations and other organizations that want change in legislation will usually hire lobbyists. But when you're starting a grassroots advocacy program, you probably don't have money to afford a lobbyist. So how can um, you effectively advocate without having a lobbyist? Uh, the lobbyists, this is something we tussled back and forth with for a long time with our group because we had we had 
a number of people tell us, um, you know, you, you guys can't do this without a lobbyist. You're not going to be able to do anything without a lobbyist. Um, totally false. And it's false based on grassroots numbers and the, you know, the, the, the basis of our group that just kept growing and growing and growing. I'm going to, I'm going to answer your question with saying it's, this stems from excellent leadership in a group, mm. the excellent leadership organization and delegation, even though Molly, you could, you could, you could prepare <laughs> to delegate a little bit more, but she and Lauren yeah. really did a fantastic job of leading our group and building the group, finding group leads in different parts of the state. And really, I mean, it is a lot of work to take on. I mean, for each of us, we had a lot of work. We had different tasks to do, but you know, growing the group, having constituents reach out to their, uh, to their representatives, can be done. It just takes, uh, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of um, organization and excellent leadership to uh, spur that on. Got it. What are some of the pitfalls which beginner advocates need to be on the lookout for? You know, like being discouraged by setbacks, not including existing coalitions. Like what are some things that they need to be aware of? Chelsea? Let's see. I, I'll let Molly add to this after uh, I answer, but I would say uh, a major pitfall I realized through our experience was purposeful tactics that insurance carriers use to distract from the real issue, to distract from the bill and getting a bill passed. Mm. Um, we tried to negotiate months before the bill was even introduced with insurance carriers, and it was just like crickets. I mean, they they wouldn't really respond. They had no interest in talking to us. However, once the bill was passed, then all of a, or once the bill was introduced, all of a sudden it got their attention. And then they tried to distract on whatever issue they could so that um, and exploit the fact that we don't have a lobbyist and essentially run out of time. So I, I still would recommend if other states uh, are attempting this, try to negotiate with the insurance carriers, but expect that they're going to use tactics to try to delay the process as long as possible and only will talk to you at the worst possible time. You know, the days before, hours before a deadline is uh, due or an amended bill needs to be filed. So that, that's one pitfall to, to look out for. Uh, Molly, do you have anything to add to that as far as pitfalls? Yeah, I would just say keep your expectations, have realistic expectations, okay? In mm -hmm. a conservative state, especially passing an insurance mandate in Tennessee hasn't happened since 2012. Mm. We were blown away when we passed the first three committees without a lobbyist. I mean, I took PTO days every single week. Me and Kara, who was in Nashville, Chelsea joined too. We spent days lobbying there with our TFA shirts, our mask on, going door by door, talking to these legislators. I mean, I have an Excel sheet that is mind blowing of how I sort, you know, based on who's their legislators, who's their house rep, who's their senator, what's their district, how are we covered here? And having others, hey, time to call them. They're on the committee, all these different things. But Knowing, I think, going in that this isn't going to be a one-year thing, and if you can just make some traction, which we did, the media, goodness, you could say whatever you want about a media, but the media was very gracious to help pick up and share what we were doing, and that got the word out. Other organizations, like even magazines, blogs, mom blogs, anything that you can find that are willing to talk about what you're doing and infertility and how people can get involved. 
that helped grow our group. But just knowing it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, things like this can take years. And so starting out with those expectations of, you know what, I might not be able to afford a lobbyist this year. I'm going to do the best I can with what I've been given. And if we can make some headway, then great. And Mm -hmm. whatever we don't do, we've learned from it. And we're going to do better next year. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we'll be coming back. We know the opposition legislators. There are some that will be against you and they will say things about you in your organization and just really learning to have uh, thick skin and not take it personal. And um, and that's always something I struggle with, you know, because I, I, I hear these advocate stories. I, I listen to them. I've been there. There is nothing worse than, and them wanting to be their voice and people not understanding. And, you, you know, they well, this is the way we've always done it. And this is how it will be. And you will never change that as a mom from Tennessee, you know, and it it will be changed. Mm -hmm. It will be. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to take some time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just setting good expectations and um, remembering the good when things are hard. Mm -hmm. Remembering what you have, what wind you have when things are hard. So grassroots advocacy is a significant time commitment. I mean, just from hearing what you guys are have said about all of the things that you needed to do along the way in a one year time frame. I mean, I, I we started the conversation um, before we started the recording about wanting to do something similar in the state of Georgia where I'm at <laughs> listening to you. I'm like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I really want to do that. <laughs> So, but in all seriousness, it really does need to happen. But in what ways can advocates help who don't have a lot of time to contribute? You know, and any one of you can can hop on and and give your your thoughts. Well, I'll go first. I think the biggest thing, if you don't have a lot of time, it is still very important to have a conversation with your House representative or senator. Okay, so write your story down, have that down pat, 30 seconds to a minute, or request to have lunch with them. They are just like me and you. They were just elected into office, right? Mm -hmm. And let them know that something like this is needed. You never know how they have been affected. A blessing, I mean, this isn't a great thing, but a lot of our legislators, it's heartbreaking really, but a lot of our legislators, their granddaughters, Mm -hmm. their grandsons, their children, they struggled with infertility. And before you know it, we're in a room with the committee and one in six, there you go. And they're sharing their story about how it's needed. And they don't usually vote for this kind, but this is needed. And so Trying to just have that initial conversation. Yes, the things that our core team does is a lot. It is time consuming. It takes a lot of energy, but it is so worth it. But perhaps you might be super busy and you might be able to just try to share on social media. Hey, uh, you know, I'm looking for some others that are passionate like I am. And you just never know. You just never know how certain connections can lead to certain things. And maybe you find a legislator that's like, you know what, I'll work with our legal team. We'll draft a bill and let's just see, like, we'll just give it our best. And, you know, you just never know. The biggest thing is don't give up. Like, Mm -hmm. just don't give up because it's, it's so needed. It's a shame that we're even doing this, but if we don't do it, then who else is going to do it for us? right? Right. People think infertility is like, 
oh, it's just, that's a choice or something. It's not a choice. It's a disease of the reproductive system. So therefore, we need coverage just like any other disease. That's right. Um, Chelsea, what would you say? And I'll, I'll just add, uh, circling back to something Molly said earlier, um, that it, it really matters that you're that you have the constituents for grassroots yeah. advocacy. Um, and having the constituents doesn't mean that those constituents need to put in the hours that you know the main team is doing, but they filling out our survey, for example, having giving us knowledge where they're located. Um, and are they willing to just shoot a quick three sentence email to their representative when we need them to, when a bill is before that representative's committee? Um, things like that that aren't super time consuming, but can help a ton because if a representative gets, you know, 30 to 50 to 100 emails, short emails about the same thing, it's going to sway their opinion. Mm -hmm. um, it will, and it'll help. Uh, so there, there are a lot of things that um, constituents can do to get involved that don't take up the uh, significant time. Well, I have a final question. And this, again, is going to be for the both of you. What advice do you have for others who want to fight at the state, whatever state that might be level for fertility coverage? I, I would say exactly what Molly said in, in answer to uh, a question before is setting realistic expectations. Um, it's, a, it's very much a marathon, you know, and if you can get something passed, that's better than nothing at all. It may not be perfect. It may not be what you started with. It may change completely from what you started with but something is better than nothing. And then come back the next year and, and work on it more, keep working on it. Um, but having that expectation that this isn't a sprint, it's not gonna get done all in one session, more than likely. Um, and that, it, you know, you're gonna have to keep working at it, uh, especially in conservative state. That, that would be my advice to set realistic expectations and then um, find constituents, find help, find uh, members to grow your organization as well. Yeah, I would just echo a lot of what Chelsea just said. I think educate yourself the best you can. Obviously, I don't remember anything from like government class in high school. <laughs> I don't even think I took that in college. You Therefore, can teach it now. <laughs> woo, baby, I, could, I can teach it now. You know what I know about every house rep and senator in our state and a lot about their personal, personal lives, is what their grandchildren's names are. I mean, but... I say that you don't have to just start somewhere, the sure. state's website, okay? And you can just learn who are your go-to people. Education is key. It matters who we elect into office. It matters on, you know, just remembering you have a voice and your voice matters. Goodness, don't let anybody dim, dim that or make you feel less than or unworthy to share your story, whatever that looks like. If it looks like state legislation, then by all means, go for it. And I'm happy to be a resource. And I know Chelsea wouldn't provide any advice as well. But if it just looks like having conversation in your community, uh, speaking at a Rotary group or, you know, talking to your employer or whatever that looks like, it might just come time to, I think we just need to learn what transparency means and how mm. to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And you know what? This might not change the whole state landscape, but if my one share of my journey can help one person not feel alone, then it is worth it to me. And it just takes the right time to kind of get to that place. But just never give up and keep keep fighting 
Yeah. And if your story can actually, if you think about it, what if my story helped not just a person that you don't even know? What if my story helped my children? Right. What what if my story now of what I'm going through ended up helping, like you had said earlier, my children, my grandchildren, my nieces and nephews, my my circle, my inner circle? What if I'm doing that for them? Like, don't even think about the outside people, people you've never met before, people you'll never be able to see before or you've never seen before in your life. But what about for the people that are in your household? How are you making it change, you know, or a change for them? So I, I truly appreciate the both of you. I appreciate your time. I thank you for joining me today. And we'll definitely share and add your information to our show notes so that people can actually definitely access information about the organization and about you guys. And, and I really do appreciate your time. Thank you thank for you. having me. Thanks so much. All right. I hope you found this discussion helpful as you weigh your next steps. We would love for you to rate us. So if you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Five-star reviews are our favorites. You can follow Fertility Cafe on its Instagram and Facebook channel, Family Inceptions. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Join us next week for another conversation on modern family building. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.